Hello, readers. Coming up, it's episode number 215 with Jackie Higgins on Sentient. First, I wanted to remind you to check out our website at booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the Animals and Nature or Science and Medicine category for episode number 206 with Joe Wimpenny on Aesop's Animals. This is Joe Wimpenny, author of Aesop's Animals, The Science Behind the Fables, and you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Jackie Higgins is a wildlife and science filmmaker and the author of Sentient, How Animals Illustrate the Wonder of Our Human Senses. Jackie, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Very well, Trey. Thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure, Jackie. So what was your goal with this book? Um, golly. Um, well, I, I made wildlife films. I used to study zoology and I've always been interested in looking at animals to better understand ourselves. And um, I've always been fascinated by the senses. There was a great series when I started wildlife uh, filmmaking called Supersense. Did that make it to the States? Uh, I don't recall that one. What was it about? It was a few years ago, but it was um, they, they were very ingenious wildlife camera crews who put um, who tried to imagine what a dragonfly might be seeing or a housefly might be seeing, or tried to imagine how um, a mole might be using touch to feel its way underground. So, so it was. So this was always in the back of my mind. And the senses, I realize that we are all still um, beholden to this idea kind of that is filtered through the generations um, since Aristotle, that we have only five senses. And so it seemed like a good time to interrogate that and shake, shake, shake it up a bit because we have very many more than five senses. No doubt about that. And we'll get to some of those extra senses later in the conversation. First, though, for some context for the entirety of the conversation today, what does sentient mean? So it's a good question. It's not easily answered. It's the very first line in my book. And I spend a few hundred pages trying to answer that question. <laughs> I think the complication is that it's slightly mercurial in meaning. So it comes from the, the Latin word sentire to feel. So it's our, it's, it, it describes having feelings and, and, and sensory experiences. But some people use it interchangeably with the word consciousness, which is an even more complicated um, um, yet again. Um, I quote on the first page this wonderful scene that, that has always stayed with me from reading this book, Do No Harm by Henry Marsh, who's a neurosurgeon who does these extraordinary awake craniotomies where he's talking to the patients while he's probing their, their mind, their brain. And he has this, um, this visual that has always stuck in my mind of him pushing through with his probe through the jelly-like substance of the brain. And every time he does that, he can't quite believe that he's pushing through thoughts and feelings and emotions. So this is this is this kind of miracle that happens. Of course, it's not a miracle. We'll have a scientific explanation, but we're figuring out what it, scientists are figuring out how to make material immaterial. So a simpler definition of the word sentient and the one that I subscribe to in the book um, is this idea of simply sensing the world. And according to that more parsimonious version of sentience, 
then um, you can open up um, the animal kingdom because most creatures are sentient in that definition. So chapter one is the peacock mantis shrimp in our sense of color. What exactly is this animal and why does their eyesight help us better understand our own peepers? So um, this is an extraordinary um, little crustacean, a real punchy, brightly colored crustacean that you find in places like the Great Barrier Reef. Um, I've seen footage online. I've not experienced this punch myself, but where um, fishermen have been fishing, or fishing and pulled up one of these shrimps and it's kind of punched them and broken skin. I mean, they're really, um, scientists in, in Berkeley have studied this shrimp and it packs a punch. If it were gram per gram as heavy as Mike Tyson, the, the heavyweight boxer, it would throw him out the ring. I mean, it's, it's, a, complete, it's a complete Olympian. Um, so in addition to having this amazing punch, it's got these spectacular eyes and light sensors in its eyes that enable it to extract all sorts of information from light, um, much more than, than, um, um, than, we, than our light sensors are able to, um, to extract. And it, it, so it, it starts this idea that, that um, it, it basically puts, it asks us to stop and think about what it is we're seeing when we're looking at color, because this shrimp proves that the rainbow isn't out there in the world, it's in our head. It's how um, physics is translated to physiology and neuroscience to create perception. Um, and so, so I use the shrimp to prove, to prove that, that our, visual, our, our perception, our visual perception is very different from, from its. And while humans may not have the ability to uh, perceive color like this crustacean does, we have pretty exceptional uh, abilities with color, more so than some other species. However, that doesn't apply to everybody. In 1994, the great Oliver Sacks went to study a group of people on an island who suffered an inordinately high amount of color blindness, whereas the general population suffers from this particular affliction at a, about a 1 in 30,000 clip. One in 20 residents in the Pingalap Atoll were colorblind. What did he learn in studying these people? So these people, so by this, this type of colorblindness is not um, simply red-green colorblindness. It's complete colorblindness. So you would have looked out over Pingalap Atoll and seen, you know, turquoise seas and green palm trees. They just see a monochrome picture in greys, ever, ever, you know, basically black and white monochrome. So I use this example again to prove the point that I was saying earlier, which is this notion that colour is not out there in the world. It's our physiology that enables us to, to perceive colour. Um, and the problem, um, and again, um, uh, um, um, there were studies done on the eyes of these people who suffer from this achromatopsia, and um, they basically uh, could not use any of the cones in the back of their eyes. So your retina has two types of light sensors. We have cones and we have rods. And the cones are what enable us to see color. We have three different types. And between those three different types, we're able to, I'm able, and, and generally people who are trichromates and don't have color blindness are able to see um, inordinate numbers of, 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 um, of colors, many more than we think we can see. 
Skipping ahead now to chapter three, the great gray owl and our sense of hearing. Owls are obviously nocturnal. Many assume, myself included before reading this book, that their vision is a big reason why they're so effective at hunting while many other species are asleep, but it's actually their hearing that matters most and also their ability to not make sounds when they're on the prowl. What can the great gray owl teach us, Jackie, about making our own world a little quieter? So um, the great gray owl, I, um, I chose this creature because it is spectacular. It does these snow plunges, so it can't see the lemming or the mouse underneath, um, and, it, and it, so it can hear them. So I could talk about sound, but I think also what was really interesting is in studying owl feathers, the great gray owl, barn owls, all sorts of different owls, um, when they're swooping in for the kill, they have um, the structure of their feathers um, has been specifically designed through years and years of evolution to deaden sound. And so scientists are looking at the fluff on the top of the, if you imagine a beautiful curve of an owl's wing, across the top, apparently, if you feel it, it feels like velvet. And this, this velvet, this little forest that's kind of a tiny little upright forest, basically dampens down the turbulence. So consequently makes the owl absolutely stealth-like and silent. And scientists are looking at this structure to perhaps use it on wind turbines and you know, jets and, and planes and um, in, in ways so we, to, to basically deaden the sound that we make to quieten our environment. So we, we can look to the owl to teach us how to be a little bit more quiet. There was a fascinating experiment conducted by composer John Cage at Harvard in 1951. He wanted to find complete silence and was allowed to spend time in a structure that had been made during World War II that offered total isolation from the world around it. After spending time in Baranek's box, he admitted to still hearing two sounds, one high and the other low. What were these sounds? I think he was told, I can't quite remember, but I think he was told that by the technician, it was the pump, the, the, um, maybe his heartbeat or the, and the pump of his blood through his veins. I remember that. I mean, truth be told, we don't know because other people who've gone into even quieter boxes since Baranek have heard these strange bodily commotions. The point of this is that there is no such thing as silence. And the reason that there's no such thing as silence is because our ears are incredibly sensitive. So we always, we always look to owls as having the most spectacular hearing, but our hearing is also rather special and, and we, can, we can hear. We're not as good as an owl. We can't hear that lemming 30, 30 meters away under a big mound of snow, that we can't hear. But Baronek's box and those experiments do show that our, our ears are incredibly sensitive. Humans also tend to lose their hearing with old age, but owls do not. Why is this? So, that, so a recent study, and this is a lovely study um, that was done in Germany, Oldenburg, um, they found that they, they, they realized they had this kind of cache of information, having done hearing tests on these owls through the years. And um, one, uh, one owl, Weiss, was particularly old, and they they'd tested her hearing all the way through her life. And they found that her hearing never um, was as accurate as it was when she was a fledgling. And the reason is now looking inside our ears and their ears is that their cells that um, the little vibratory hairs that when they vibrate, because sound is simply a kind of commotion of molecules, when those cells um, vibrate, 
um, you can the, the owl gets to hear. But what happens with the owl, unlike us, is that these these cells regenerate. So if scientists could figure out how to regenerate our hearing cells, we too would be able to solve all those all the uh, problems we get with old age when it comes. It's called presbycusis. But um, when we, we can't quite hear what our grandchildren will be saying to us. So maybe the owls, as well as making our world more silent, might enable us to hear better as well. Gotta love the possibilities there. Chapter four is the star-nosed mole and our sense of touch. How is the innocuously named star-nosed mole the fastest killer in the animal kingdom? <laughs> so it has a little has a little star on the end of its nose. Um, essentially, when it's underground, um, its its eyes aren't particularly good. Its sense of sight is not particularly good. But this star, which is a twenty-two tip star. As small as, I bruised my finger here, but as small as my little finger. So these are tiny little moles with tiny little stars. But those stars are the most touchy-feely appendage in the, in, the, in the mammalian kingdom. No other appendage has, as, has a denser packing of touch cells than this little mole. So essentially, it sees the world through touch. It builds a picture of its world as it's kind of feeling its way through its burrow through touch. And it, is, um, it ended up in the Guinness Book of Records because um, Ken Catania, who studied these moles, discovered it was the quickest, it was the quickest kind of prey capture. Forget cheetahs, but when once it had spotted this, um, spotted this little piece of, uh, of worm, ambrosia to a mole, then it was super speedy in terms of gobbling it up. <laughs> Oh, and we'll get to cheetahs here in just a little bit. You brought up an interesting concept in this chapter that I'd never really considered before. Obviously, people have different abilities to see and hear and even taste and smell, but there is a difference in how some people touch versus others. Why is there uh, such a difference in our abilities to sense touch? So I, I, um, I met the most extraordinary chap called Eshref Armagan, who's a Turkish artist but he was born completely blind. So he paints, he does beautiful two-dimensional um, drawings and paintings of the world, of a world that he's never seen. And a little like the mole, he basically says, I see through my fingers. I'm not blind, I see through my fingers. So with this notion, he, was, um, he went to Harvard where he had his brain scanned by um, scientists at Harvard University. And they asked him to feel objects inside the brain scanner while, while drawing. And what they found was, is that his brain dealt with the touch information from his fingers very differently from the way yours and my brain would deal with that information. So um, as he was doing this, had a neurologist walked in or a neuroscientist walked in to look at the scan of Eshref as he was doing this, they would have looked at his brain, not knowing that he was blind and said, What's this man looking at? Because the part of his brain that for you and for me is lighting up right now because we're looking at one another, our visual cortex, that part of his brain, his visual cortex was lighting up when he was feeling. So the brain doesn't lie fallow and the touch information is used like sight information in order for him to see the world. I mean, it complicates what it is we mean when we talk about sight. Um, 
but there you go. So different. So what's really interesting about that chapter is, is that ultimately we have all these um, sensory organs that we know and love, our eyes, our ears, our nose, our mouth. Um, but the information then goes to the brain. And so perhaps the brain is the ultimate sensory organ. It lies inside our skull in a black vat. Um, but, these, um, but these sensory organs are sending it information. And the brain, though, will make use of that information in whatever shape or form in order for you to function and sense your world. You so, and the brain is incredibly neuroplastic in answer to your earlier question. Yes, it is. And uh, you stick with the sense of touch with chapter five, the common vampire bat and our sense of pleasure and pain. I am speaking with you from Austin, Texas, a place that values bats, but vampire bats especially have, are, have obviously uh, received a pretty bad rap over time. And this literally goes back centuries now. Who are Uwe Schmidt and Jerry Wilkinson? And how do they help change the nightmarish reputation of vampire bats by learning that they're actually pretty selfless for bloodsuckers? Completely. I mean, they rewrote, they rewrote the, um, the bat's rap. They essentially studied these bats and discovered that they are caring and, and sharing creatures because life as a vampire bat is pretty tough. You live on the edge the whole time. Blood doesn't um, contain, um, if, if you don't, if you have, if you come back from um, your nightly foraging um, as, as a vampire bat and you haven't managed to find uh, blood, then you very quickly begin to feel quite weak, you get quite ill, and you can die. And so in order for um, these bats to survive, the colony members look after one another. And um, a bat that's come back feeling rather plump, having fed rather healthily, will, doesn't sound particularly nice this, but he regurgitates or it regurgitates uh, blood for the other bats to then and saves that, that other bat's life. So there is this give and take. And what's the reason it's in my it, it's in my chapter on touch is because that whole process of give and take and sharing is mediated through social grooming and through touch, through the sense of touch. And this is also exemplified with a 2004 study conducted at a bar, I believe, on the coast of France that shows the powerful influence of human touch, too. Correct. Correct. So there are two, I, I, I mean, there are two senses for touch in a way, or in this book, I divide it into two. I talk about the star-nosed mole, and I talk about touch being the ability to kind of topographically figure out the lay of the land. And then I talk about um, the sense of feeling touched, how that, the, the emotions and, and, and the sensations that that elicits, pleasure, pain. And what's extraordinary is there's this, uh, um, uh, scientist has recognized that just touching someone, whether you're taking an order from someone at a bar um, or in all sorts of situations, touch has um, a, a really important effect on the person who's being touched. So at the bar, what they found was um, the, the, um, the bartender who had touched their uh, customers more got a bigger tip. We're very susceptible to touch. Yes, we are. Chapter six is the Goliath catfish and our sense of taste. Two pages into this chapter, you let the reader know that the Goliath catfish's entire body is their tongue. How can this be possible? And evolutionarily speaking, Jackie, why did this happen? So it can be possible because essentially the taste buds that are on my tongue that enable me to taste my cup of coffee in the morning 
are on, on the catfish, they are outside the whole of its body. And scientists have studied not the Goliath catfish, but other catfishes and counted the number of taste buds across their flanks and fins and, and wherever, or covering the fish. So, but, so scientists call these catfish swimming tongues. And the reason that's important is in those soupy waters, they're sometimes called black waters of the Amazon, where it's really difficult to see. Instead, these fish have decided to taste their way through the water. So if there's a prey fish further up, they can't see it, it's hidden in the murk, but they can taste it on their flanks. And they use information that's coming from that um, fish to figure out whether to turn, whether, you know, they know that if the, um, the taste molecules hit their right flank quicker, then they'll veer off to the right because that creature's over there because it got, that those molecules got to its right flank sooner. So you can, so they geographically track their prey using taste. Does the human tongue receive too much credit in terms of the sense of taste? It does, or a, so there's a real muddling of, of the words taste and flavor. And, um, and um, essentially often what we think of as taste is flavor. And scientists have shown that the majority of flavor has nothing to do with the tongue, but to do with our nose. And how, when we chew our food, um, how, um, of, how um, smell molecules pass up the back and we smell them. And what's extraordinary is those molecules, when they, the information reaches the brain, our brain hoodwinks us into thinking that we're tasting that on our tongue, but actually we're smelling. So Proust got it wrong when he was talking about the Madeleine and memory, and he thought it was his sense of taste that was bringing him back to childhood and, and all of that it was probably as much, if not more, the flavor of the Madeleine, because smell has a really um, privileged access to the brain and the emotional center of the brain. Um, one scientist um, hijacked Descartes' fam famous words and said, I smell, therefore I feel, which is wonderful. <laughs> Rachel Hurst. That is beautiful. And uh, you need to think no further for an example of this than wine experts and the fact that they will smell the wine before ever tasting it and let that resonate to really unlock some of those those hidden or more obscure flavors. Yes. And they they roll it around in these big glob goblets to get a large surface area of the liquid to kind of vaporize. So you've got these smell molecules and those are what will hit hit the nose. Absolutely. That's right. The crystal matters as well. Chapter seven is the bloodhound and our sense of smell. Dogs are obviously known for their sense of smell. What about the bloodhound's nose makes it the Michael Jordan of canines when it comes to detecting scent? <laughs> they have very, they have specially designed nostrils. Even Michael Jordan couldn't pull this one off. Um, they have specially designed nostrils that essentially they're brilliant odor capture devices. And scientists, fluid dynamicists have studied this and they've, they've tracked how the, the, um, they, the, 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 the uh, essentially the um, canine creates these little vortices that suck up the odor molecules straight to its nose. And its exhalation is even more interesting. Any dog you'll notice will exhale out the side so it won't blow away its sample. So they, they're real little hoovers, they're suction devices, these, these, these dogs. That's interesting because they also drink in a fashion that you would never expect until you actually watch a dog drinking in slow motion where the, the tongue is, is almost lapping water up in a reverse style. It's not bringing it into its mouth over the top, but underneath the tongue, correct? 
Right. I don't know. I've never seen that. I'm now going to have a look when I, but that's interesting. So maybe there's an element of um, smell going on here as well as taste. You may be right about that. Now, my mind was blown in so many different parts of this book, but uh, this is another one of those chapters where I was really surprised to read that although there is a gap between a dog's ability to smell and human's ability to smell, the gap is not as wide as uh, pop culture would lead us to. Uh, what exactly uh, is it that you saw that uh, led you to this belief as well, that humans are, are better at smelling than many of us realize? Well, the science. I mean, the science, you know, many different studies that are happening um, that I explore in the book um, that I was blown away by. Um, I mean, we talk of, um, I, I, um, I talk of quite a few studies but at, at every aspect, um, we seem to be we seem to be phenomenal at identifying smells. Our nose is much more sensitive than we give it credit for. Um, one study, again back to, to Berkeley, um, they had people um, wearing um, earmuffs and blindfolds down on their hands and knees, sniffing like a dog, through, looking for a kind of line of chocolate-scented string. And we're even rather good at doing what dogs do, which is take uh, using information from one nostril and comparing it to the other nostril. So stereoscopically smelling our world, like we stereoscopically hear our world, we're also good at kind of stereoscopically smelling our world. So all these different facets came together to make me realize that this it's a myth. Um, and as again, in the book, I look at where the myth came from, Paul Broca, um, and it's a wonderful myth that is was great fun to debunk. Chapter eight is the giant peacock of the night and our sense of desire. This is when we break away from the five known senses into some of the lesser known senses that I think are, are well worth the time that you spent exploring them. Now, the giant peacock of the night is not a bird, but a moth. And a moth's scent detection is possibly a thousand times more sensitive than a bloodhound's, specifically when sensing the pheromones of a female moth. The power of human pheromones is a hotly debated concept, but there is evidence that the ability to smell can incite both positive and negative emotion in a way that none of the other senses can. Neurologically speaking, Jackie, why is this? So it's, it's a little bit back to what I was talking about earlier about the fact that smell has this um, uh, privileged access to the amygdala. So it's very much connected to emotion. Um, so that's part of the, that, that is certainly part of the reason. Um, but I look at, um, I look at pheromones in humans. I mean, pheromones in, 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 uh, in, um, in, in science, the idea of a human pheromone is really hotly contested. Um, I think we are very, um, we don't like the idea that we are somehow hijacked like these moths are to kind of follow that female come what may I mean that these pheromones are like chemical commands um, and we have free will and so the idea that something is going on under our nose to hijack this free will is concerning so there's been a lot of um, there's been a, a, a lot of studies but none have quite proven yet that we have human pheromones. There's one very interesting study um, being done in, in um, France about the product of love, babies, and um, studies being done by Benoit Charles. And they show that um, in all likelihood, babies are smelling the mother's pheromone in order to find out where to suckle. 
So um, it's a very, it was a really fun chapter because it's so colorful and it, 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 it um, brings up lots of emotions and it's very controversial, but there's a lot of tantalizing evidence out there, um, which, and, and, and some very um, um, convincing and interesting studies, which I discuss. An evolutionary psychologist at the University of New Mexico named Jeffrey Miller ran a fascinating study on our subconscious sense of attraction at a strip club of all places. Yeah. <laughs> what did he and his team learn from tracking 18 dancers and 5,300 lap dances over the course of two months? <laughs> so they found that the tips these ladies got went up when they were ovulating. And so the question is, what signal are the gentlemen who are watching this display, what signal are they picking up on? And it didn't seem visual and it didn't seem to be um, um, hearing. Um, so maybe the, the idea is maybe it's something on the air, um, something um, scent like, maybe pheromones or maybe another scent. Um, so yes, it's, it's fascinating. And lots of, again, back to these tantalizing studies. Um, one of the scientists who I spoke to, Tristan Wyatt, who is um, a zoologist, talks about pheromones in all places in the animal kingdom. They're found throughout the animal kingdom. And the notion that we're different, again, is a bit of a nonsense. Um, so, so that's his point. You know, um, he feels confident that at some point we will have that cast iron evidence that there is a, um, that, that, that we have human pheromones. Chapter nine. Uh, returns us to the cheetah and our sense of balance. We all know the cheetah is the fastest land animal, able to cover 100 yards in less than six seconds. But their ability to decelerate and overall agility are equally impressive. And all of this speaks to exceptional balance. Why is their balance so good, Jackie? So, um, so a study um, was done of the cheetah's inner ear, and they have... Um, so there are various balance organs. Our balance organs are inside uh, our inner ear, near where we hear. And these essentially are slightly arranged differently in the cheetah that makes them incredibly sensitive to motion. And this enables them to, this gifts them incredible balance. Because of the size of their vestibular apparatus, does, is the cheetah's hearing worse, relatively speaking, to other cats? Because obviously felids have a, a reputation for really good hearing. Yes. No, I don't think so. Um, we, we talked about that. Um, th their hearing's not impinged. How did an English human evolution professor and a German imaging expert use an understanding of the inner ear to learn when we gained a profound separation from our primate ancestors and what was their discovery? They discovered, so there's a big debate as to when, um, when humans took their first step. Um, and so, so, um, so essentially these scientists looked back, um, Fred Spohr was the chap who did this study and it was published in Nature. He now works at the Natural History Museum over in London. They decided to look at the inner ear of um, homonyms um, dating back to find out at which point the ear, um, the vestibular apparatus, um, that the canals adapted in order for vertical uh, motion. And they were able to track it back to Homo erectus. There are evidence of fossils before Homo erectus who were walking, but I think the real walking, doing so with a hop, skip and a jump, I mean, proper kind of athletic walking, um, came with Homo erectus. 
Harvard uh, scientist Dan Lieberman uh, pointed out that humans were able to run so efficiently at, at long distances in part because we keep our heads fairly still when we're running. Is a lack of head movement uh, an important com component in how the cheetahs move, not only with uh, running and decelerating, but also uh, its ability to move side to side and uh, how it is still so highly functional, even uh, when the terrain isn't necessarily consistent? That's a lovely analogy you've made. Absolutely, you're right. And the reason, if you watch a cheetah in high speed, um, I'm sure you know what a steady cam is. It's one of these. Um, so, so the cheetah's eyes hardly move in space. And the reason that's important is because they're a gazelle hunting missile. So their eyes lock to their prey, and their body is Scooby doing all around in all manner of in all manner of kind of. Uh, but their eyes are looking exactly where that cheat, where, where the gazelle is next headed. So that's why the, the, the head is incredibly steady. Chapter 10 is the trash line orb weaver in our sense of time. Spiders are diurnal. What does this mean? And how do trash line orb, weeder, uh, orb weavers buck this trend? So I, I use the, I mean, I could have chosen any creature for this particular sense, this notion of a sense of time. And, um, but the reason I didn't is that these, these uh, creatures were being studied at um, East, um, East Tennessee State University. And they found, they were looking at these creatures' activities over the night and during the day. And they found that these creatures, these spiders were waking up before the sunrise every morning to rebuild their webs. And, um, and so it enabled me to talk about how all of life on earth um, is able to sense the passing of the night and the day. And this incredible discovery made by Russell Foster that our eyes have more than um, sensors that enable us to see the world, to see one another. He proposed that there was another sensor in our eye that enables us to, um, another light sensor that enables us to keep on time with the change of night and day. Um, scientists, ophthalmologists said he was absolutely barking he would propose this idea and they would kind of shout him out in conferences. You know, they said that the eye was the best understood organ um, known in, 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 you know, biologically understood. And the idea that there was another sensor in there was preposterous, but he proved them wrong. And we do have another light sensor in our eye that enables us to basically keep our circadian rhythm, our, our, our um, passing of night to day, and our daily schedule, our circadian, our, our night to day schedule. And that keeps all our body clocks because we have a body clock in every cell in our body. This light enables the master clock, which is in our brain to make sure all the other little body clocks throughout our body are doing what they're meant to be doing at certain times of a day. Because we're different biochemical systems in the morning to the evening. Yeah, it was fascinating to read about uh, all the different experiments that have been run where individuals were denying themselves the ability to know whether it was night or day and how it really didn't take that long for things to level out. I thought the key would be the pineal gland, but as you just talked about, it's more in the eyes than anything else. So I think that it's so, I mean, people have done all sorts of bananas things, you know, kind of gone down into dark caves and isolated themselves from from, from um, the sun, the turn of night and day. And it only takes, um, it, they still they still kind of, you know, they clock a ish, irregular-ish 24 hour rhythm. But even if they're half an hour slow or half an hour fast, 
that over time builds up and sometimes you know time goes too quickly or time goes too slowly and that's because they've divorced their eye from the sun the the the, the the sun and the moon, the sun. Chapter 11 is the bar-tailed godwit. What a great name. And our sense of direction. This bird is able to fly all the way across the Pacific for eight days without rest, knowing exactly where it's going the entire time. Uh, the sense of direction is obviously remarkable, but physiologically speaking, how is this even possible, Jackie? Well, I mean, it's extraordinary. I know. So that's, I mean, that's the most obvious question. The fact that these Birds. So uh, Bob Gill studied and Lee Tibbet studied these birds and discovered that they fly from Alaska all the way down to New Zealand, almost clocking 12,000 kilometers nonstop for eight days and nights. Apparently, they're like squidgy fat balls before they set off, kind of flapping to kind of catch that headwind that, you know, they they basically they basically surf these storms south. But even still, I mean, they can't sleep, they can't um, eat. Um, physiologically, it is bamboozling. But the question I asked is, how do they find their way? That's right. And you quote uh, a scientist named Henrik Moritzen. Yes. You, uh, you said there is evidence many birds have both a magnetic compass and a magnetic map. So these two senses are probably working together. I, I have a basic grasp of the magnetic compass, I believe. But what exactly is a magnetic map? What does he mean by that? So it's not so much they, they have a map of their um, of their. Well, a, a compass is no good without a map. So the idea is if you have um, if you have a map, then you can be you can be and you know which direction you need to go and you can get from A to B. Um, but the compass was what I was really studying because that's the sensory aspect of this um, of this complex um, situation. How is it that they know, you know, which way to travel to get south to those to um, New Zealand? Um, and there are various theories as to what's going on with with the compass, whether it's quantum, um, as Henrik would have us believe. Um, um, the idea also there are cryptochromes in these birds eyes that somehow see the magnetic field, um, which is an extraordinary idea that, you know, as the bird is flying over the sea that overlaid from this, there's a kind of, there's that the, they're able to see the magnetic field. Um, and then Joe Kirschfink has another um, theory, which is that um, it's magnetite based and magnetite is a magnetic metal. And this, um, this would be like, it swings like a compass within, um, the physiology of an animal and enables them to uh, compute which way is which. Do humans have a magnetic sense? And if so, how do we know? So that's the big question. So that's the big question and the big debate. Um, so the only two chapters really that, that um, there's the pheromone chapter where, we're it, where uh, whether we smell pheromones remains to be seen and whether we have um, the Godwits compass uh, sense also remains to be seen. But Joe Kirschfink at Caltech has done some amazing studies suggesting that our brains are, um, are, sensitive, are noticing. He's, he's tracked people's brains as he's swung um, magnetic field shifts around them. And he, he has seen some evidence that the brain is responding. So whether it's some subconscious sense of knowing-ish where you are, my husband would say he hasn't got it at all. <laughs> <laughs> 
Chapter 12 is the common octopus and our sense of body. Why do you call the common octopus nature's Houdini? Because they are absolutely brilliant escape artists. And everyone who I spoke to attest to this. So scientists who are studying them, put them in aquariums. Um, the, the, the chapter starts with Inky, the escapee from a New Zealand aquarium. I mean, the moment that the, the, the top is left off, they're out of there. <laughs> they're out of there. So they are, and, and they are, um, because they're unconstrained, they don't have a skeleton like you and I. They're completely, they're all protein and all possibility, all eight legs. And the only thing that constrains them is their beak. So you must have seen footage of them kind of almost pouring themselves like liquid through tiny holes. Um, so they are, they're really rather wonderful. I mean, I, if, they're definitely my soft spot creature for this book. Do humans possess a version of this muscular sensory system? And if so, how does it manifest within our sense of body? Because obviously uh, we are not able to compact ourselves like octopi. Uh, but if we do have some version of this, uh, what, what is the way that it maybe makes us exceptional? So we, it's, it's a sense we all have and we take for granted and we don't notice. It's kind of, it's, um, it's a subconscious sense. It, it's mainly unheeded. But if you close your eyes, you can feel your body. And that is this body sense that is enabling you to feel your body and know with such precision where your limbs are that you should be able to do, you know, bring your finger to your nose with your eyes closed. So it's one of these senses that is so much part of our fabric and so difficult to imagine. Um, and the only, I mean, so I met a chap who had lost this sense and only in losing this sense, do you realize what it does for us? Because Ian Waterman, who, um, who a few decades ago had a terrible virus that wiped out this sense for him. Um, when he woke up in hospital with these, after having these high fevers, when he closed his eyes, he could not feel his body. He felt disembodied essentially. And he's had to learn, he couldn't move. It's not that he couldn't move, his arms would be moving a little bit like Inky the octopus, but he wouldn't know that that's what they were doing unless he looked at them. So he had to learn to control his body again without that sense. And the sense that he used in order to control his body was his sense of sight. And he retaught himself how to sit up, how to get out of his bed and how to walk again. But the moment that the light fails, power cuts, or even that momentary blackness he talks about that you get after watching fireworks, just that kind of blackness, he staggers. Or if the lights go out, he falls like a ragdoll. This sense is so, so important, and yet we just don't really notice it. Yeah, body blindness is a terrifying sounding affliction. Uh, you just mentioned consciousness and subconsciousness. Are octopuses conscious beings? So they've, they've, been, they've, they've made the list of conscious beings. Um, and so there's a wonderful book written by Peter Godfrey Smith called Other Minds. Now he's a philosopher, a scuba diving philosopher. And so he has wondered what the experience of being a conscious octopus, what, what consciousness might mean to being an octopus. It's a bit of a thought experiment. And the thing that makes it really kind of phenomenal, that thought experiment, is that is this unusual sense of body that they have. So they have this sense of proprioception, but quite often it's, it's just within the proprioception just feeds back within the leg and doesn't reach the brain. So, that, so an octopus's limb will be going off and winkling a shell out of a, a rock face somewhere. But unless the octopus looks, they don't necessarily know that's what their arm is doing. So consciousness, one, it, this, this body sense 
makes the mind absolutely makes our mind kind of struggle with understanding what life might be like for an octopus what consciousness might be like for an octopus you spend a small amount of time on the duck billed platypus in the afterward why is the platypus's beak so impressive in terms of its role in this creature thriving and what might this mean for human potential in the future so um, platypuses have um, tiny electro sensors on their beak that they use like metal detectors. They wave their beak across the kind of rocky surface. Um, and those sensors are able to detect the electric field of these little hidden crustaceans underneath the rocks. So we can't detect, you and I can't detect electricity like this, unless it, it's at sufficient amplitude when you put your finger in the socket and there's, ah, there's a big, uh, there's a big moment. So we can't, we do not have this, this sense that the, that the platypus has. And so I use this creature as a cautionary tale to remind ourselves that what we perceive as reality is not necessarily reality for every creature or reality or, what, or what's really out there. It's only our reality is completely circumscribed by the senses that we've evolved. So we'll only receive information, we'll only, only the senses that suck up information from, from the world will reach our brain and we'll then have a perception of the world. So, so I, use the, I use the platypus to reveal this, this, this notion, but also this kind of sci-fi notion that maybe, and people are looking into this, about extending our umwelt, extending our sensory capabilities to extend our sensory world. So maybe one day, we might be able to have the platypus's electric sense, should we wish. Final question, Jackie, because your day job is as a filmmaker, of course. Are there plans in place to uh, come up with a documentary or documentary series version of this wonderful book? I think it would make a terrific documentary series. I mean, I, as you say, I wrote it. I've, I've written Horizons and PBS Novas. And so I structured it like that. It's, it's very much about personal stories, meeting interesting people, scientists with amazing stories. And then of course, wildlife, exceptional Attenborough style wildlife blue chip. Um, so I think it would make a terrific series. So we will see. <laughs> I, I am a sucker and really interesting information being wrapped up in a uh, fascinating storytelling style. And Jackie Higgins has done just that with her new book, Sentient, How Animals Illuminate the Wonder of Our Human Senses. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Jackie, thank you so much for the time today. And thank you for this beautiful book. Thank you very much, Trey, for the opportunity to talk about it and get, get it out there. It's coming out next Tuesday. Sentient will be on your bookshelves next Tuesday. I'm really excited. So, and delighted that it's reached, reached your shores. And um, fingers crossed it has a good reception. Fingers crossed indeed, Jackie. Take care. Thank you very much. Join me next time for episode number 216 with author, Vietnam vet, filmmaker, and naturalist Doug Peacock on Was It Worth It? A Wilderness Warrior's Long Trail Home. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.